This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. With that being said, if you could please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we want to make sure that we get one to you. So you can actually go ahead and just raise your hand up. Uh, Don't be embarrassed about that. We want to make sure that everyone has a Bible in front of them. Because we're going to hear some things this morning that are so good, I want you to know that I'm not making it up. I want you to be able to see it for yourself in God's Word. Um, If you're trying to find your way to Deuteronomy, it's uh, the fourth book in from the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Wait, numbers, I'm sorry, fifth book in, <laughs> fifth book in. Uh, we, we proved last week, I'm not good at math, because I said like the 1980s was 30 years ago. So that's like not my, that's not my strong suit. So it's the fifth book in, fifth book in Deuteronomy. Make your way to chapter, chapter 18. We're in a series during this Christmas season where we are seeking to get to know Jesus better by looking at several key moments of biblical history that led up to his birth. The story of Jesus does not start with a baby in a manger. We saw in the first sermon, it actually starts at the dawn of time. When God promised Adam and Eve that he would send through a woman, he would send a deliverer who would reverse the curse that sin had brought upon this world. And Jesus is that deliverer. Glory be to God. We saw last week in Genesis chapter 12 that God had given a, a promise to Abraham that through him he would bring a blessing, not to a nation, but to the nations. And we've seen that that's what Jesus came to do, to draw all people to himself, that anyone who puts their faith in Christ might know the blessing of God. Today, as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 18, we're going to see one of the important moments that led up to the birth of Jesus that's captured and told for us in the story of Moses. If you don't know who Moses is, he was one of the key leaders of the Israelite people. And as he got close to the end of his life, he left the Israelite people with this prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. Let's read together from God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. God says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. If you bow have me now in a word of prayer, God bless the reading, now the preaching of his word. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to come to you today with open hearts, with open minds, to what you want to say to us. I recognize, Lord, every time that I'm preaching that not everyone here might be a believer in you, and so, Lord, I specifically pray for people who do not yet know you, that you would help them to see that there's nothing they have to lose in just opening up their heart, that this maybe could be you today speaking to them. And Lord, I pray for those of us who do believe you, that today be a day where you strengthen our faith in you. Your word, you say, comes into our lives, and it always has a purpose. Lord, I pray by your grace you would accomplish the purpose of this word 
in our lives today. For the good of our souls and the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. So we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that the Israelite people, they had a desire to hear from God, but not directly from God. They had seen God's holy fire descend on Mount Horeb, which is also called Mount Sinai. The same mountain, don't get confused, called two different things. Um, kind of like Philly and Philadelphia, right? Uh, we're talking about the same thing. They had recognized when the fire from God came on that mountain, they recognized that God's holiness is a dangerous thing. All people, we are unholy. We are sinful. And for sinful people to encounter a holy God is a death sentence. We would just get burned up and consumed. And so they wanted to hear from God because God's word are spiritually life-giving. But they didn't want to hear directly from God because they didn't want to die. And so Moses said, well, someone is going to come who will be a prophet like me, but even greater than me. Because he'll speak God's very words directly to you. And then Jesus says this in John chapter 5, verse 46. Notice Moses says, a brother like me. And so Jesus is born as an Israelite. He is a brother like Moses, and yet he speaks to all people when he says in this, John chapter 5, verse 46, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Jesus says that this prophet that Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy 18, who would be like Moses, but even greater than Moses, Jesus is saying, I'm here. This prophet has come. And so in order to really know Jesus, we have to know something actually about Moses. If Jesus is greater than Moses, we have to know who Moses is in the first place and what God was doing through him. And so Moses' story is actually primarily told to us uh, in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. The book of Exodus can be split up into two parts, where you have Moses leading God's people into deliverance. That's Exodus chapter 1 through 18. And then Moses leading God's people into obedience. That's Exodus chapter 19, verse 40. And the good news of Jesus is that he leads us into an even greater deliverance. And he empowers an even more life-changing obedience. And so I'm entitled this morning's sermon, Deliverance and Obedience. Deliverance and Obedience. Let's look at both of these things. First, deliverance. Exodus opens up with the story of the Israelite people living in Egypt. How did they get to Egypt? Well, they had gone there because their forefather, Joseph, had been, through a variety of situations, divinely put there by God in a position of prominence to help Egypt navigate a worldwide famine. And so Joseph's family ends up coming into Egypt to survive the famine, and then they end up staying there. And as they stay there, they multiply. God had told his people that when you get married, you need to make babies, and they took God's word and they did that. They did it really well. They made, they made a lot of babies. And so several generations pass, and the story about Joseph begins to fade from the Egyptians' memories. The Egyptian people are like, who are all these Israelites who are now starting to almost outnumber us? And they just keep making babies. What is going on? I'm not sure how they got here, but here's what they're going to do. They come up with this plan to enslave them and to get some free labor. And so the Egyptians enslaved the Israelite people. And not only did they enslave them, 
but they sought to exercise some population control. And so Pharaoh ordered that all the Jewish babies who were born as males were to be killed. That is the dark days of Exodus chapter 1, and then Moses is born, and we pick up his story in Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. And so we see that a child is born, and when his mother sees him, she says he looks fine. Other translations will say he looked beautiful. Now every baby, excuse me, every mother thinks their baby looks beautiful. Where the baby actually is beautiful might be open to debate, but to every mother... Their baby looks very fine. But the word that being translated here in the Hebrew that gets translated in our text as, as fine is a word that actually means more than just appearance. It means divinely favored by God. So this is more than just a mother thinking her baby is beautiful. This is actually a theological statement. She is recognizing that God's divine favor rests upon this child in a special way. Again, the Israelites were oppressed and enslaved people, but God had promised the deliverer would come for them. And when the mother sees her child, she gets a sense that maybe the deliverer is here. And so she hides her baby. When he gets too old to stay hidden, she puts him in a water-sealed basket and places him in a place where she knew the Egyptian's princess would come to bathe. She puts him there strategically, hoping that they will take pity on him, which is exactly what happens. Moses gets adopted by an Egyptian princess, but notice how carefully the text shows us that he never lost his Hebrew identity. His own mother, we're told, becomes his wet nurse. She she raises him. You better believe that she told him who he truly was. And even his name Moses, that's not an Egyptian name. That's a Hebrew name, which means to be drawn out. He was told from His name, what had happened to him, that he had been drawn out of the waters, rescued by God, providentially provided for. And we see that Moses clearly had a sense of his Hebrew identity as we go on to read this in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian 
and hid him in the same. Moses grows up, and he has a sense that he's supposed to be some kind of deliverer. And so notice, when he sees his people, and it repeated it twice, his people, and he's not talking about the Egyptians. He's talking about the Israelites. Those were his people. He identifies as an Israelite, and so he kills one of the Egyptian slave masters. That's not the way that God had intended him to be a deliverer. Moses here is taking things into his own hands. He's coming up with his own plan. He relied on himself and he did things his own way. And it really does not turn out at all as he planned because his murder gets discovered. And he has to flee Egypt for his life. He did things his own way and it honestly blew up in his face. I wonder how many people here can identify with that. You've done things your own way. And it's blown up in your face. That has certainly happened to me more times than I'd like to admit. We just rush ahead. And we do what we think is right. And sometimes God is merciful and allows things to work out for us. And sometimes God is even more merciful and allows things to blow up on us. So that we can learn we never should have trusted ourselves in the first place. We should have waited for God's plan and waited on God's timing. Moses ends up banished, and he certainly must have thought he was done because the events between Exodus chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 3, that is 40 years. For 40 years, he's just kind of living in exile in the desert. But in Exodus chapter 3, God shows up to Moses in a burning bush. God tells him, I'm about to take you off the sidelines. I'm going to send you back to Egypt to deliver my people, and this time, God says, you're going to do it my way. I think about that. Moses, for 40 years, must have felt like he had totally blown it. For 40 years, he's just sitting in a desert, being like, I guess I wasn't divinely favored. I guess my mom, she really was just being a mom. She hadn't really actually heard anything from God. He's sitting there in self-doubt, wondering if his sins forever disqualified him. But here's what we're being told. Our story, friends, your story is never done until God says it's done. There is no one who is too far gone for God to reach, redeem, restore, and use. And so Moses goes back, and this time he does what God tells him, and he goes right up to Pharaoh and says, let the Israelites go. But Pharaoh is now about to lose his free labor, and so he says no. And so God sends ten plagues. We read about this in Exodus chapters 7 through 12. I'm not going to go through each of these plagues, but here's what we need to understand. None of them are random. Each plague is perfectly and carefully chosen by God to show how he, the God of Israel, is greater than all the false gods of Egypt. And so, for example, God's like, you want to worship the river Nile as your God? I'll turn that river into blood. You want to worship the God of the harvest? I'll send locusts to destroy your What we're seeing is that in each plague, every false god that Egypt worshipped is decisively defeated by the one who truly is God. The final straw comes when God sends the angel of death. Pharaoh, you think you have the power of life and death over my people? God says, I'm going to show you who really has that power. And I'm going to take the firstborn of every living thing in the land of Egypt. But in God's mercy, he makes a way for anyone to be saved. 
God says, whoever will take the blood of a lamb and put it over the doorpost of their house as a sign of their faith in God, the angel of death will pass over that house that's covered by the blood. So the Israelites do that, and the first Passover happens. And Pharaoh's spirit is finally broken as his own firstborn is killed. And so he tells Moses to take the Israelites and go. But the story of deliverance is not done yet. Because Pharaoh soon regrets his decision and he pursues them. And so in Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites really come to an impossible situation. They have an impassable barrier in front of them, the Red Sea. And they have an enemy bearing down on them, the Egyptian army. And they have nowhere to turn. But friends, when we have nowhere to turn, that's often when God starts doing his best work. And so he tells Moses to lift up his staff. And as Moses does, the waters of the Red Sea part. And the people of Israel are able to safely pass through to the other side. The Egyptian army tries to get in on this deal, and they, they, they start to pursue them through, through this now dry land. But God tells Moses to raise up his staff again. And as he raises up his staff a second time, the Red Sea comes crashing down on the Egyptian army, and they are destroyed. And the Israelites are freed from their oppressors without them needing to do anything to actually defend themselves. Moses had led them into deliverance. But Jesus said that Moses was actually writing about me. And so when Jesus was born, you see so many similarities. There was an evil king who sought to kill him by ordering every male boy in Bethlehem to be killed. Gendercide once again. But God warns Jesus' adopted father Joseph in a dream. And Joseph flees to Egypt. To save the life of Jesus. Just like the people of Israel had fled to Egypt to escape the death of the famine. And so too for Jesus, Egypt becomes a place of refuge and safety. But he cannot stay there. He has to come out of Egypt to fulfill the prophecy given to the Israelite prophet Hosea. Who says this in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. And so Jesus goes to Egypt. But then God calls his son out of Egypt. Jesus is the truly divine divinely favored deliverer sent by God and he is more divinely favored deliverer than Moses because Jesus himself is God he is the true son of God for he is himself one with God and how he delivers his people is by being the true Passover lamb Jesus is killed on the cross so that anyone who puts their faith in him can have his blood spiritually cover their lives and as it does, death passes over us because the sacrifice of Jesus is accepted on our behalf. Now make no mistake, like the Israelites at the Red Sea, we also find ourselves in an impossible situation. We have the judgment for our sin in front of us and there's nothing we can do to avoid it. And we have the enemy of death bearing down on us. And there's nothing we can do to flee from it. No matter how many essential oils we take. We, we, we had nowhere to go. But like Moses' staff, Jesus came and was lifted up on the wood of the cross. And through his death, he has parted the Red Sea of God's judgment. And made a way for us to walk through to forgiveness. Forgiveness. 
And as death sought to pursue us, Jesus triumphed over that enemy too. Because just like Moses' staff was lifted up a second time, Jesus was also lifted up a second time. First, he was lifted up on a cross. Second, he was lifted up from the grave to resurrected life. And through his resurrection, death has now been completely destroyed for the believer in Jesus. Like, if you think about it, what used to be our enemy is now nothing for us but an Uber ride sent for and paid for by God to take us to be home with him in heaven forever. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The barrier that was in front of us and the enemy that was bearing down behind us has both been destroyed for us without us needing to do anything to defend ourselves. Because Jesus was lifted up not once but twice. Glory be to God. He's brought a deliverance greater than Moses. And this morning, I don't know what you need to be delivered from. I don't know what struggles you face or what demons you battle or what sins you think you'll never overcome. But I do know there's a deliverer who has come for you. And his name is Jesus. And he can bring you out of your sin. He can bring you out of the land of oppression and death. And if you place your faith in him, he will bring you to be home with him in heaven forever. Because we are given this promise in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. And I am sure of this. I am sure of this. Of what? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you place your faith in Christ, I might not know anything else about you, but I am sure of this about you. That if you place your faith in Christ, he who began a good work isn't going to stop that work, but will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. You might have wandered far and you might have wandered long, but you can't outwander God. He will redeem, he will restore, he will rescue. That is who he is. Jesus brings an even greater deliverance than Moses. He brings this spiritual deliverance of eternal life forever in him. That's the first part. Jesus brings a greater deliverance. Here's the second part. Jesus leads us into a deeper obedience. Let's look at the second part of Moses' life, which is all about obedience. After God delivers the Israelites, he brings them to Mount Horeb, which again is also known as Mount Sinai. And there he speaks to Moses once Again, in Exodus chapter 19, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They sent out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him on the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak the people of Israel. Notice what God's doing here. He reminds them of how he delivered them. 
He says, I bore you on eagle's wings. I take that as a proof text, even God's an eagle's fan. Glory be to his name. I'm just kidding. A few jokes today. Um, really what's going on there, actually, this is actually beautifully shown. If you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings, um, there's a scene where the hobbits are being uh, really pursued by their enemies. And these eagles come in. And they have nowhere to go, but these eagles come in, and they jump on the backs of the eagles, and the eagles fly them away to safety. That's what God is saying here. He's, he's reminding them, I, I've saved you. I've, I've delivered you. Now, he's saying, because of what I've done for you, trust me and live according to the commands I give. See, here's what we need to understand. God never coerces obedience. God does not force obedience. He proves his love. And then he invites us to trust him. He invites us to trust that in his love, he truly does want what is best for us. And so we can think that God's commands sometimes are oppressive. Like we naturally, especially as Americans, we we rebel against authority. I want to be my own person, do things my own way. I got my rights, right? Like, but God giving commands is actually an expression of God's love and desire for relationship with us. It's God saying, I'm not going to be an absentee parent who doesn't actually care about you and let you do whatever you want to your own self-destruction. It's God saying, no, I love you, and so I want to be involved in your life. And I want you to listen to me, because I know what is really best for you. That's why he calls this a covenant. A covenant is a relational commitment with an unbreakable bond. In ancient times, to make a covenant, something would actually be killed in order to symbolize that if one of the parties broke the covenant, they deserve to be killed. And so here, God is inviting Israel to enter into a covenant with him, and in doing so, to be his special people. And then what we read in chapters 20 through through 40, the rest of the book, he basically just lays out the commands of this covenant. This is known as, as, as the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God gave through Moses. And this covenant can really be split into two parts. There's all these commands to obey, And there's all these sacrifices you need to make when you fail to obey and you need to be forgiven. Right? So it's basically saying, here's what you need to do. And here's what you need to do when you don't do what you're supposed to do. Right? And that's, it's it's a beautiful thing. Now, as we read through this, as you go through, you know, uh, Exodus, you'll you'll read some of the laws. And some of them make a lot of sense. Like, don't murder. It's a pretty good law to have. You know, it makes sense why God probably doesn't want people going around killing each other. Uh, But some of the laws are a little harder to understand. Like, don't eat shrimp. I read that, and I'm like, what's the point of living? Like, just take me down. Like, shrimp is one of my favorite foods. I had a neighbor actually tell me once that this was one of his issues with the Bible. He's like, it has all these weird commands, and you all are inconsistent in what you choose to keep and what you don't choose to keep. So what's up with that? That's a really good question. That's why it's very important for us to understand what it means that Jesus is a prophet greater than Moses. Because Jesus came to, as he says in Matthew 5, 17, fulfill All the law. See, Moses gave the law, but Moses couldn't actually fulfill the law. Moses himself fell short of keeping the law. He wasn't allowed to go into the promised land because of how he sinned against God. But Jesus came, and he's a better prophet than Moses. Because he didn't just come and say, here's what you need to do. He came and did it on our behalf. Jesus perfectly kept the Mosaic covenant. He never did anything outside of God's command. He never sinned against God. Because he himself is God. But since he is not just God, he is the God-man, he was able to perfectly keep God's law as our representative on our behalf. And so if you think about it this way, Jesus took 
our test and got a straight A, but since he took it on our behalf, we actually get his grade. He perfectly fulfilled all the commands for us, and then he was also the perfect sacrifice for us. He, he took our test, and he took our detention. His grade gets applied to us, and our punishment gets applied to him. And so everything about the Mosaic law is completely, totally, and fully fulfilled by Jesus. Which doesn't mean that we now live with no law. No, Jesus invites us into an obedience even greater than Moses. It's the obedience that God spoke about through the prophet Jeremiah. When he says this in Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law within them. And I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jesus came so that God's law could be written on his hearts. And the people who have God's law written on their hearts, that is the true people of Israel. That is God's people created in Christ Jesus. See, see, God's people, as you read the Bible, it, it started as an ethnic designation, but what Jesus comes and shows us is actually meant to be a spiritual condition. Being God's people means that we have put our faith in God. We are following him. And, and, and what we do and how we know that we've done that is because his law has now been written on our hearts. We want to follow him. We want to be with him. Obedience is not something that we just have to do. It's something that we get to do. Jesus' long, longest teaching in the Bible is captured for us in the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, he repeatedly says, you've heard it, heard it say, not don't worry about it, he says, you've heard it say, say this, let me tell you something even more about it. So for example, Matthew 5, 21. You've heard they say of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's the Mosaic Covenant. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so Jesus takes it from just the act of murder to the heart condition of anger. His message is that he didn't just come to give us a list of commands that we are to do. He actually wants to change our hearts. He wants to change us from the inside out. He wants to change how we think and feel as well as how we act. Which is why he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. John chapter 14 verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. You see, as we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of our hearts so that our hearts can be changed to want to follow God. Before Jesus came, God could not dwell with us. Remember our opening verse in Deuteronomy 18, the Israelites did not want God to speak to them because they feared being obliterated by him. God's presence in ancient times was held in the Holy of Holies, which had an impenetrable curtain between that and God's people. People could not enter into God's presence because God's a holy God, and for sinful people to stand before him, we cannot, much less have his hand write his law on his, our hearts. But this is what Jeremiah actually goes on to say. After saying, I'll put my law within them, and I'll write on their hearts, and I'll be their God, they should be my special people, watch what he says. How's this going to happen? For I will forgive their iniquity. And I'll remember their sin no more. See, because of what Jesus has done to forgive us of our sins, 
Because in Jesus, God remembers our sins no more. Because he already held them against Jesus on the cross. Because in Jesus, we are forgiven, we are clean, we are righteous, we are holy. Now, the Holy Spirit can enter into our lives and God can change us from the inside out. Now, we don't necessarily go and, and follow all the, the laws that God gave Moses because many of those laws were specific just for the Israelite people. So I enjoy shrimp, just did so last night, to the glory of God, praise be his name. But Jesus actually does affirm God's moral law given to us in the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, if you're familiar with them, could really be split up into two categories. Love God, commands one through four. Love God, here's how you should do it. And then love your neighbor, commands six through ten. Love your neighbor, here's how you should do it. Now those two designations, love God, love your neighbor. Does that ring any bells for things that Jesus might have said in the New Testament? Jesus gets asked, what is the law about? This is his answer, Matthew chapter 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Same two divisions. Love God, love others. And as you read the Gospels, actually, each of the Ten Commandments are specifically addressed by Jesus throughout the Gospels. And so the Ten Commandments weren't just for the Israelites. Jesus teaches us that they're actually for all of God's people for all time. And so God, what's happening here, he, he doesn't just invite us to love him and love others in any way that we want. No, we're to love him and to love others according to how he says we are to love him and to love others. See, when we define love, we get in all kinds of trouble. Think about this. How many disagreements exist in our country right now because pe people just can't agree on what the most loving thing is? Like, I I've never heard a politician run on the platform, I'm going to be a hateful person. Like, no, they, they always try to, like, run on the platform, like, hey, here's the most loving thing to do, right? But, but the, their answers couldn't be more different from one another about what's actually loving to do. And our whole country gets divided and polarized and people get upset and it's just this whole big mess. Why? Because we can't actually agree on what is the best, most loving thing to do. Because we have no idea what love actually is. We talk about how we want to be loving people, but what is love? I think about when I was in my college years and I would have said I was a very loving person. Looking back, I was a mess. Think about your college years. Maybe you're in them right now. You're a mess. Glory be to God. Um, no, I'm not, I'm not saying. You're probably hopefully, hopefully more mature than I am. But just think about, think about you 15 years ago, wherever you are. Think about you 15 years ago. Have you learned anything in 15 years? I certainly hope so. Right? So, like, do you want to go with love based on what you used to know or what you know now? Like, we're always constantly learning. We can't even know what love is. And, 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 but here's the reality. God does. God knows exactly what love is. Because he's the one who made us. He's the one who showed us the most incredible display of love ever by dying in our place on the cross. And so God knows what it means to love. And so he teaches us his commands and his word so that we might know how to live a full and thriving life by loving him and loving others according to how he defines. Not according to how we feel. Certainly not according to how our culture defines. We love according to how God defines. And we're called to obey the commands of God, to love him and love others according to how he defines. And we need to understand, this obedience, it's not optional for followers of Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So how do you know you love God? Jesus is like, don't, don't tell me, show me. 
If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you're not keeping my commandments, then it doesn't matter what you're saying with your lips. Your heart is very clearly far from me. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Look, Jesus isn't looking for fans who appreciate him. He's looking for followers who give their hearts to him. He's not looking for a bunch of fans. He wants followers. He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. But he's also the God who says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, through the lips of his servant Paul. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can't miss the, this connection, friends. The God who calls us to obey him because we love him is the God who loved us even when we were sinfully running in the opposite direction from him. In other words, his love comes first. His deliverance comes first. Just as Israel was delivered and then called to obey, so too we are delivered by Jesus and then called to obey Jesus. He wins our hearts and then he seeks to direct our lives. Now, our obedience is imperfect to be sure. We stumble and fall. But hear me on this. Just because we don't always follow God perfectly doesn't mean we should have an excuse to not want to follow him sincerely. Our obedience is not about perfection, but it is about direction. It's not about perfection, but it is about direction. We might stumble and fall, but in obedience, we should be trying to go God's way. And so I think the question I just want to ask you at this point is, are you going God's way right now? Or are you trying to chart your own course? Maybe you believe in God. Maybe you're someone who would say you are a follower of God. But does God have your whole heart? Does he have your whole life? Or are there parts you're keeping for yourself? Are, are, there, are there things that you are okay with in your life, knowing that God's not okay with that thing in your life? That's charting your own course. That's not going God's way. Friends, God has saved you from death so that you might find your life in him. Yes, he loved you as you were when he died on the cross for your sins, but he loves us too much to leave us as we were. He wants us to know the true blessed life of living wholeheartedly for him. It's kind of like this. I'm going to close with this. It's been a while since I've used a Star Wars reference, so I've got to sprinkle them in every now and then. It's kind of like Chewbacca. Probably the first time you ever heard this in church. Um, mark this moment down in history. It's kind of like Chewbacca. If you know the story of Chewie, you know he had a life debt to Han Solo. Han had saved him from death. And from that point on, Chewbacca wouldn't leave his side, but followed him wherever he went. He listened to what Han said, although he certainly argued sometimes. But ultimately, Chewbacca gave his life to the one who had saved his life. And so this might be the first time you've ever heard this in church, but friends, we need to be more like Chewbacca. We need to be more like Chewbacca. We need to give our life to the one who gave his life for us. We need to give our life. We need to live with obedience to the one who gave his life for our deliverance. And as we do that, friends, let's be clear. Let's not for a second think that we're missing out on anything. Let's stop talking about sacrifice. This is not sacrifice. As we live our lives to follow God, we will taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm chapter 34, verse 8. We will find that he himself is our exceeding joy. 
Psalm chapter 43, verse 4. 1 John 5, 3, his commands are not burdensome. But Psalm 119, 24, your testimony is my delight. See, God is the God of joy, who at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, verse 11. He is the God of joy, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He is the God who runs to meet his wandering children when they return, too delighted to even be dignified. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. He's the God who leads all of heaven in rejoicing when one sinner comes back to him. Luke chapter 15, verse 7. And so, friends, whatever Jesus is asking you to leave behind to follow him, he's not asking you to make a sacrifice. He's asking you to let go of something that is lesser so that you might receive a joy in him that is greater. The one who loved you enough to deliver you, loves you enough to ask for obedience from you. Because he knows that only in following him will you find the joy that your soul craves. Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. Because he's delivered a greater deliverance and he empowers us to live with a greater obedience. And so may we place our faith in Jesus. That in him we are delivered. And in him we can be a new creation who live with God's law written on our hearts, not perfectly, but sincerely, as we follow him. Friends, may we do this for the good of our souls and the glory of his name. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.